Hi, ladies. Welcome to the Blue Stocking Baptist podcast. My name is Hannah Oliver, and I'm here with my lovely co-host, Esther Faulkner. We are super excited that you've decided to join us. The purpose of this podcast is really simple. We just desire to glorify God in all we do, and we desire to see average Christian women fall in love with theology and deeply treasure God's word. So, yeah. Um, like I said, my name's Hannah. I am from Arizona. I am married. My husband's name is Nick, and I have two daughters. Their names are Francis and Noah. I am Esther, and I live in Alabama, so we're a little ways away from each other. I am married to my husband. His name's Joey, and we have only animals right now. We've got pets, but we're actually pre-filled missionaries right now, so we won't be in the States for too long, but that's just a little bit about us. Yeah, so Esther, can you tell us, I guess our listeners, because I already know, but the name... <laughs> Why we chose the Blue Stocking Baptist and where did it come from? Yes, Blue Stocking Baptist. Actually, Hannah, you had a Facebook post where you were kind of fishing for ideas for a podcast name. And it was actually Amy Brees who left a comment and she's the one who suggested Blue Stocking Baptist. And she said that it came with like a funny story. So we Googled it and blue stocking is actually, if you were to Google that right now, uh, the definition that you would get is an intellectual or a literary woman or a woman with intellectual or literary interests. So we really liked that. The backstory of blue stocking, the term coined from the 18th century to describe a group of ladies who were attempting to replace social events. Uh, like play, playing card games with discussions related to more learned interest and literary um, interest. One woman who hosted these gatherings at her home, her name was Elizabeth Vesey. And I hope I'm saying that right. Elizabeth Vesey. She was an Irish gal. She lived in England and she was well known for hosting these parties. And one day, or one evening, I don't know when it was, but she invited a Mr. Benjamin Stingfleet. Stingfleet. He was a botanist, a translator, and an author. And evidently his class was lower. Whatever class he was in, he was in a little lower class than the rest of the, the typical guests to these gatherings. And he declined her invitation because he did not have the proper attire. And so what Elizabeth Vesey told him was just come in your blue stockings because blue stockings were the informal wear in that day. So she wanted to encourage conversation over fashion. So I just, we thought that was a really cool story. And then of course we, we paired it with Baptist. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> like Esther, she was describing the significance of blue stocking, which we do really like. It's a word that really just captures the essence of what we're trying to accomplish. But some of you may be thinking, why Baptist? So first, we want to say that Baptists are not followers of John the Baptist. I've had people accuse me of that before. <laughs> um, 
We are called Baptists because we believe it's only appropriate to baptize believers by immersion. And we also believe in justification by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, rather than good works. And justification is how one is made right with God. And this teaching is clearly summarized in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. We also believe in the priesthood of all believers, and our highest authority is the Bible alone rather than tradition. So while this isn't a comprehensive list of beliefs, it is some things that set us apart from other religions and even other denominations. So today we're just going to really focus on the last point, excuse me, the last point, which is why scripture is our highest authority and why we can trust it. Right. And I think a good way to jump into that would be defining what we mean by Scripture and uh, what we consider Scripture to be. And I think the best way to do that is to start with a definition of canon. Canon is a rule that provides direction, a standard against which to measure. And the Christian canon that we have is the books, the list of books that we have as the Bible which is the 66 books, the 39 from the Old Testament and the 27 from the New Testament that we believe that God inspired and preserved as his word for his people. Um, and I guess a, a good question is where did we, where in the world did we get canon? <laughs> well, we have to pull evidence from the scripture because if we believe that that's the ultimate authority, it has to um, give us, it has to be the standard for our truth. So if we look at, the book of or the books of Genesis through De- Deuteronomy, which we call the Torah, we see in those recorded history books that God commanded Moses to write down revelation and that he would preserve the covenant for his people, and that would be what revealed God's will to the people, and they often would gather and uh, the word then would be proclaimed to the people, all of the people of Israel. We also are told that God's word would be preserved. It was carried in the Ark of the Covenant. We see that in Exodus chapter 25. And since God's word was preserved, that meant that no ruler or leader of Israel would have an excuse to not know or understand God's requirements as well as all of the people. Uh, After Moses, the major and minor prophets of the authors of the Old Testament literature were also inspired by God, and people came to recognize these writings that were also part of the canon of Scripture. Now, you've maybe you've heard of Sadducees, but Sadducees were group groups of Jews that only believed that the first five books were Scripture. But later, Scripture revealed that first-century Jews they believed in the Torah, the prophets, and the wisdom literature. They believed that the in a threefold division of the canon. So they believed that the law was Genesis to Deuteronomy, that the prophets, they believed in major and minor prophets. So major uh, prophets would be Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, and minor prophets would be like Amos, uh, Nahum, Micah, Hosea, and Malachi. And then, of course, the wisdom writings would be our Proverbs, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and the Psalms. 
And we know that first century Jews believed the canon extended to, 39, to the 39 books that we have in the Old Testament today because Jesus even demonstrated in Luke 20, uh, chapter 24, verses 44 through 47, where he specifically said that he came to fulfill the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So that's just proof there that even Christ, during, during that time, he pointed out to the Jews that they believed those three fold division of the canon. And then we see in the New Testament that the Old Testament is quoted about 30, I mean, not 30, 300 times. <laughs> not 30 times, but 300 times. Now, there are, there is a collection of 14 works known as the Apocrypha which some Christians have also regarded to be inspired, but ultimately Jewish people in the time of Christ did not include those writings in the Hebrew canon of Scripture, and their convictions were shared with early church fathers who had some of the best training in the text and the history of the Bible and the preservation of the biblical text. And then that brings us to the reformers of the 16th, even up into the 16th century, concluded that Old Testament people of God rightly recognized and received the canon. And in the mid-16th century, the Roman Catholic Church at the Council of Trent, that is, that's when they officially declared the Apocrypha to be part of the Old Testament canon. And Rome argues that the Bible rests on the church rather than the church on the Bible. And that's where our differences come because we believe that Though the local church predates the completion of the New Testament, we know that the church came into being through the preaching of the word. So uh, scripture for them was, you know, ultimately what gave them their faith, what, you know, believing the word. Um, and I guess to summarize uh, the, the test that the 66 books had to pass was, or to, to get into the canon was it had to be written by a recognized prophet or apostle or one closely, very closely associated with a prophet or apostle. It had to be truthful. If it contained error, then it was not put into canon. Um, it had to be faithful to previously accepted canonical writings. It had to be confirmed by Christ or a prophet or apostle. And the corporate usage and recognition also came into play. So that's like uh, with the Christian's of the early centuries, whenever they would look at what the Jews included in scripture, that would be what uh, corporate usage and recognition would be. So yeah, that's a so, quick summary. <laughs> very quick. <laughs> so then that would kind of put us into what do we believe about the Bible? Um, so Esther and I both believe that the Bible is self-authenticating Self-authenticating is any document that can be admitted into evidence at a trial without proof being submitted to support the claim that the document is what it appears to be. So basically that means that one cannot authenticate the Bible without appealing to the Bible. So a self-authenticating canon is not just a canon that claims to have authority or simply bears internal evidence of authority but is one that guides and determines how that authority is to be established. So I'm going to read that again because I had to read it like five times to understand it. 
<laughs> so a self-authenticating canon is not just a canon that claims to have authority or simply bears internal evidence of authority, but is one that guides and determines how that authority is to be established. So a really good example is how can we know that Jesus is the Messiah? Well, we go back to the Old Testament. Isaiah 53 gives us a very clear description of who the Messiah will be. It includes things such as he was despised and rejected by men, and he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. It says that the Messiah will be afflicted, excuse me, yet he will not open his mouth, that he will be like a lamb led to the slaughter. Isaiah 53 points to the details of the Messiah's burial and his innocence. When we read the whole chapter in context, we can't help but be astonished that Jesus Christ fulfilled this entire prophecy that was given to us 700 years before Christ was even born. So the question then becomes, how do we know that Jesus is who he claims to be? And why can we trust the New Testament? And the answer is simply because the New Testament points back to the Old Testament, and the Old Testament confirms the truthfulness and accuracy of the New Testament. So that's a very clear picture of how the Bible is self-authenticating, because the Old Testament is authenticating the New Testament, and there is no contradiction between the two. Right, right. Because, I mean, if we say that canon is truth and we believe that it's God's word. We have to not just believe that it's truth, but that it's the standard for truth. And I think it'd be good now to look at some scripture to see what scripture has to testify about itself. So I'm going to start with um, 2 Timothy 3, chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. And I think that this, I guess the way to summarize this would be, um, why do we, why don't we need more? So this, this question, uh, or this verse, I believe, kind of summarizes that. It says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So Hannah, what do you think about this verse? <laughs> yeah, so um, I agree. <laughs> yes, I would agree with you that. It, we, it does um, really explain why we don't need any more. It does show us that scripture is completely sufficient and it should be the foundation in which we build our entire life. So you can see that in talking about how it makes us wise for salvation, that it was breathed out by God. So it's the very words of God. It's what he wants. It's his revealed will for our lives. And it reveals to us how man obtains salvation. It's also profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, which basically covers all your basis. You don't need right. <laughs> to go outside of the Bible. You don't need visions or anything extra. You have everything that you need in scripture. And it continues ending that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So when we go to the Bible, it really does. I mean, with sanctification, we are complete 
in Christ and we are trained in righteousness by the word. So we need to value it and we need to be in it. So then following up with that, we have second Peter one, 20 through 21, which really talks about why it is trustworthy. So I'm going to read that starting in verse 19, it looks like. Um, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy spirit. So Esther, do you kind of want to explain why that verse really tells us why the Bible is trustworthy. Yeah, yeah. So Second Peter, Peter here writing, I love how he says that they had the prophetic word more fully confirmed because as time went on, they increasingly um, had more scripture and could be more equipped as they received more scripture. So, and then the fact that it says that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone else's interpretation and that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. I really think that's important because I, I think I've, I don't know how many times I've gotten the question of, well, you know, the Bible was just written by men, Mm -hmm. right? And the fact that when we read the Bible, it tells us that, that it was, because of the Holy Spirit carrying them along, that it was not, men do not get the credit for the Bible. It is from God. (laughs) So if it's from God and God is truth, then we have to believe that his word is true and Mm -hmm. not just, you know. Helpful writings for moral Right, right, (laughs) right, right. And so that brings us to our next verse, which is Psalm 119. And then I've, we've pulled a couple of different verses from that one because it's very long. So verse 160 says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. We also uh, wanted to mention verse 105, which says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I think it's really important that 160, it says the sum of your word is truth. Because, mm-hmm. you know, you could be picking out all kinds of different verses way, you know, completely out of context. And, you know, if we don't look at scripture as a whole and let scripture interpret scripture, you're not going to, you're going to have a distorted truth. Yeah, you know? definitely. And then mm-hmm. even talking about how it's a light to my path. So it guides us. Going back even to the Timothy verse in training us in righteousness. And oh, yeah. So it is our guide to this life. We cannot live our life without it. Um, it's incredibly valuable. And then it being a light to my path, another verse that we have is 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 7. And this really talks about how it's a light that exposes darkness. So for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So Esther, do you kind of want to Yeah. So yeah, like go, I mean, going with um, what the psalmist said in, in 119 verse 105, just the fact that we're told that God's word is a light. And then we, we hear, we see that in this passage from second Corinthians that 
that God spoke and said that the let the light shine in the darkness and other passages in scripture compare God's word to light and that it exposes darkness. And I think that that's great to keep in mind because when you're trying to discern something, whether or not it's from God or whether what you're doing is sin or not, I think it's important to know that it's the word that can expose, you know, truth from error or, you know, mm-hmm good from bad it's what helps us discern (laughs) yeah because yeah because it's i mean it's the source of truth so and i think we have one more verse hebrews 4 12 and this one says for the word of god is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the divisions of the soul and of spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart which that really connects with that last verse yeah about getting to you know it can it can penetrate to the deepest steps of our heart that's exactly the word it's <laughs> just thinking when you said that. <laughs> i mean it's just it's pretty straightforward and it's i mean to me like reading that it, it's a heart check for me because yeah. it's like you know that goes deep i mean it gets into deep d- deep details there of joints and marrow Um, piercing to the divisions of the soul and spirit like and then comparing it to a two-edged sword it and nothing's hidden either right right exactly um and then we have some uh just some things we also wanted to mention and remind ourselves and you guys listening that you know christ prayed that his people would be sanctified by God's word mm-hmm. and John 17. And when Christ was tempted, Christ used scripture to rebuke him mm-hmm. and Christ rebuked Sadducees and other Jews when they did not know scripture. And it's also really important to remember that um, it's the Holy spirit that aids us in understanding. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. So following up with that, um, we're going to talk about what happens when scripture is not our standard or our final authority. So I'm going to give another example that we can all relate to. So say you're going to church on Sunday morning and your pastor is preaching to the whole congregation. Uh, you begin to feel incredibly uneasy and you don't like what your pastor is saying. So you go home upset and angry, maybe even confused. There's a lot of different emotions going on, but you just don't think that what the pastor said was true. So you're thinking that pastor, what he said cannot possibly be true. And instead of going (laughs) to scripture, you allow your feelings to dictate what you believe is true or false. When we allow our emotions to control what we believe, we no longer have an objective standard, which should be the Bible, but we now have a subjective standard our own heart. So the definition of subjective means based on or influenced by personal feelings, tastes, or opinions. It is personal, individual, emotional, instinctive, intuitive response. So I'm going to read that one more time. So the definition of subjective is based on or influenced by personal feelings, tastes, or opinions, it is a personal, individual, emotional, instinctive, intuitive response. So the reason this is 
an inappropriate standard is that scripture teaches in Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is deceitful above, above all else who can trust it. A proper response to this scenario would be, you know, that sermon made me uneasy. You go home, you open your Bible, and you let it be your standard to determine what's true or false. So scripture may confirm your feelings. You may have been correct to feel uneasy about the pastor's sermon. He could be wrong. He could be teaching something false. He could be teaching heresy. And it's important that we know our Bible so that we can protect ourselves from false teaching. Right. Um, because even our pastors are not immune to teaching false things. Our feelings very well could be confirmed by scripture and we could be right but that does not mean that we should trust every feeling. And it does not mean that our feelings are what we measure truth and lie. So we must be careful to conform our minds to scripture. An objective standard is by definition not influenced by personal feelings or opinions in considering and representing facts. It is impartial, unbiased, and appeals to the facts that are presented. So two plus two is always going to equal four, and that is objective, even if you feel that it is wrong. Yeah, I think another an example that I think of is when I talk to many of my Mormon friends, when I ask them, you know, why, why do they believe what they believe? And they say, well, I prayed about it, and I believe that God, you know, gave me this feeling and they call it the, the burning of the bosom where they get this overwhelming emotional, more emotional response and they don't look to scripture for, for their ultimate authority. They ultimately base it on whether or not they get a feeling. I actually met with some Mormon sister missionaries a couple of weeks ago and they really whenever we would go to scripture with them they were like well i feel like you're you're not you're not getting into emotions like you don't care about emotions and it wasn't that it was just they wanted us to of course pray about the book of mormon yeah but they were completely against looking at scripture they just they they it was like a brick wall but i guess that's a good example because i mean you have mormons who believe that they've prayed and gotten a good feeling about, you know, their additional books. Yeah. And then what about, what, what would, what would they say to like, um, an Islamic woman who, you know, believes that in her heart, that her religion's the, the same, there's yeah. no standard. <laughs> yeah. And the biggest issue with that, I mean, and most false religions appeal to this is that they'll tell you to read their holy scriptures and they'll say pray about whether or not it's true so using mormons as an example again when you press them um they'll normally respond i know this is true but they're not saying i know it's true because scripture lines up with the book of mormon they're saying we know it is true because they've had an emotional response like Esther was explaining. So, and I've met with missionaries right. also, and you get to the point where Christians are claiming to have the Holy Spirit and then the Mormons are claiming to have the Holy Spirit. So now it really comes down to whose Holy Spirit is right. How are we going <laughs> to determine? And I mean, the Bible talks about that there are many spirits, there are many false teachers. Like we, right. we need to be able to tell the difference and the only way that we can do that is appealing to scripture and comparing any 
vision or as the Mormons would say, because Joseph Smith had a vision. And if you really compare it, his vision did not agree with scripture. So right there, that's going away from scripture. And now the second issue is that your response to it is solely a spiritual, emotional response to how it makes you feel. It, it isn't because scripture says it's true. And going back, scripture is truth. So if scripture is truth, we must bring everything to scripture. And if it does not stand the test against scripture, then it's, we need to discard it. It's false. We can't, right. we can't trust it. Um, we can't live by it because it's, if, tr- if scripture really is truth, we, we cannot do that. And I wanted to include, I, I thought that the, 1689 London Baptist Confession, it it had some really good summaries of what the church, what the church has historically said about the Bible. And I just want to read paragraph four and 10 real quick. Paragraph four says, the authority of Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. Therefore, it is to be received because it is the word of God. Paragraph 10 says, The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined, and in those and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Scripture delivered by the Spirit, into which Scripture so delivered our faith is finally resolved. And I just thought that those were really good summaries of, you know, what we were trying to explain. explain. Yeah. Yeah. And I also just want to add and make it really clear that the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith is a secondary authority. We do not believe that takes place of scripture by any means. So we value what Christians before us have written and taught, but it does not mean that we exalt the confessions over scripture. We do believe that the confessions and creeds are good summaries of biblical truth, and the confessions can also be really helpful resources to guard us from error. Um, We aren't the first generation of Christians, and there have been faithful saints all throughout history who have defended the faith well and explained complex doctrines already. So while we don't outright just accept the confessions, and we have read it, and we both believe that it is one of the best explanations of scripture. We do test the confessions against our final authority, which is the Bible alone. And if the confessions go against scripture in any way, we discard it. It is not something that we are going to appeal to. It is not something that we are going to build a foundation of our life. It is simply a resource that other Christians in the past have written that we can go to And I mean, these men were very careful with the words that they chose and how they explained these. I mean, you can see in paragraph four and in paragraph 10, just how careful they were with their words. So (laughs) yeah. And then this is kind of a side note, um, but I do have a book suggestion for anyone who likes to read. I just read this book (laughs) back in July in a couple of days. It was really good. It's called Standing on the Rock upholding biblical authority in a secular age and it's by james montgomery boyce and it's just a great book on it really equips you to 
trust that the Bible is without error and it is sufficient. And um, he just makes a wonderful case on why scripture should be our standard, just like Esther and I were really talking about. So, yeah. And of course, we want to tell you guys, like, test us and what we've said in this podcast and any other podcast that uh, episodes that we do because you know ultimately what we're saying is you know scriptures are supreme authority and it's it's no good to just come and and listen to us or other podcasters or anyone else and not compare it to scripture don't take our word for it look for yourselves Um, And also we really would appreciate prayer (laughs) if you would pray for us because um, we saw this week that podcasts are a lot of work. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And then of course, like and share this episode, um, especially if you want to hear more and rate us on iTunes. Yes, please do. So I just want to end a Bible verse that I just really love because it It includes every person in the Trinity. (laughs) So may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. God bless you guys. Thanks for joining us and we hope you come back. Yes.